Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Good morning, good to see you. It, uh, it's always an adventure. Uh, with COVID, you just, you just do not know how many people are going to be down and what's going to happen. Uh, so honestly, man, I'm, I'm glad to see uh, a lot of you with slim pickings uh, last week as a lot of us just seem to be super sick. So uh, man, I'm glad that you're here with us to worship and hear the, the word. Uh, only just a couple fast announcements to keep ahead of you. Start of the book of Romans, and we have these in uh, the front for you. Uh, we have a ton of them. Uh, so uh, grab one. Uh, the nice part about this, it has the scripture and then a whole bunch of area to take notes. So you can kind of go through in the sermons, take notes, kind of look through them later. But uh, we want these to be a blessing to you. So if you haven't got one, uh, grab one. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, the only other announcement for today is we're going to have a member meeting today at 1230 to 230 uh, here. Uh, so we'd love for you to come and, and be a part. We're going to talk about uh, last year, uh, what we hope for this year, and there's some, some other uh, pertinent information uh, to us. Uh, there are some people who are in quarantine at home. We're going to try and Zoom them in and have that available as well, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to deal with some family business uh, and hopefully be encouraged uh, about what God has done over the last year or so and what he keeps doing even just in a, a crazy time. All right? uh, so that's today at 1230. And uh, I'll pray, and, and we'll jump into this. Father, I pray that you would be with us in this text, Lord. Uh, we just confess to you, it is, it is heavy, Lord. And so I pray that you help us see it in the right light, uh, that we may see the hard things in it and not look away, but also see the beauty of what you've done, your gospel, your uh, glorious mercy towards us. Let us see it rightly, Lord. Let us not look away, but behold the beauty of who you are. Jesus, we pray that in your name, be glorified today in what we're doing here, God. Amen. So we'll start with reading the text uh, for today, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So I mean, we're, we're right at the, the front side. Um, but it says this, starting in 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has showed it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So um, during the first hundred years of Harvard Law School, they actually had all their first year uh, law students read and study and analyze the book of Romans as a part of their curriculum. Standard curriculum here, read Romans. And they did this because of the way that Paul carefully goes through the book and what he does, especially in what we're in now for the next little bit, is he builds an argument in the book. 
He starts with common experience in the world uh, and what the world needs. Uh, and he has this kind of thesis or theory that the gospel explains the facts, it best explains the way the world is, and it best explains what the world also needs. Along the way in building this argument, what, what he'll do masterfully, and this is why the, the law students would read it, is, is Paul will raise objections that he foresees other people having before they ever raise them. He'll raise their objections for them, and then he'll answer them, and he does it in such a way that common objections that other people bring before his thesis, they actually strengthen his case and weaken theirs. It, it's a masterful thing. So his thesis, we have a, a slide for this if, you, if you're taking notes, the gospel is the only thing that can fix us. That's the thesis that we'll see over and over and over in this book. Religion cannot fix us. Right? You can't sprinkle a little bit of more religious activities on things. Autonomy cannot fix us. Tolerance won't fix us. The Enlightenment version 1.0, it certainly didn't fix us. In the modern Enlightenment, that hasn't fixed us either. Only the gospel can fix us. That's the thesis. We covered that uh, thesis in verse 16 and 17 last week, and he's going to use the statements in 16 and 17 all over this book where Paul declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then there's four points of why he's not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for or because it is the power of God for salvation to any person, to the Jew and the Greek. And he goes into depth on this point. So you can be rich or not. You can be from a good family or, or not. You can be a barbarian or not. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it can save any of those types of people. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it reveals the righteousness of God inside of it. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it reveals also the gift of righteousness that believers get through faith in Jesus, and that's a powerful gift. And he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is a declaration that, that creates faith and then leads to a life of faith. So because of that, he's like, I'm all in for the gospel. I'm not ashamed. This thesis statement will be the drum that he keeps beating over and over and over. And in it, he will say that the gospel is like dynamite. It is explosive with power to radiate out and change people uh, from the inside out and do amazing things. The beauty of the power of the explosive gospel is, though, that it can't just save one person. It can do dynamic things like save an entire family line. It can change the effects of an entire person. As you kind of see the beauty of the dynamic power of the gospel, he's trying to get us to see things like what would happen if someone, a regular person, comes to faith through the dynamic power of the gospel, and then that person spends 50 years faithfully following Jesus. What power could be behind that? Living out a gospel-centered life. 50 years sharing the gospel to the best of their ability. 50 years showing the love of Jesus in word and deed to the world around them. 50 years discipling other believers, which all believers are called to, to do. The world may not call this sexy, but the Bible would call it powerful. What kind of things would happen from people who get changed by this powerful gospel and live out and share out the implications of this powerful gospel? Now, after revealing this, this thesis to us, he transitions a little bit into what we saw today. One theologian says he doesn't stop to give us a nice, like, comfy back rub. He just he moves to harder things. He shifts to speak clearly about, uh, and this will be kind of the hinge thing that we remember for this week and next, and, and you know, quite a bit from here on out uh, through halfway through chapter 3. He's going to speak a lot about the nature of sin and the consequences of sin. This is what sin is like. This is how it operates, and this is what it leads to. 
He's going to talk about human depravity. He's going to talk about God's righteous judgment against it. Now, while this is heavy, what we need to understand is we need to see it. Because until we know we need the gospel, uh, we will never, uh, until we really understand the bad news, we'll never cry out in repentance towards God and accept faith in Jesus. Again, we touched on that before. Until you know how bad the bad news is, the, the, the scandalous nature of the good news will, will never be illuminated in a, in a proper way to you. As Paul lays this section out, I want to prepare you for the hardness of it. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through verse, or chapter 3, verse 20, are going to be court case laid out against humanity. Uh, to, the, to the Greek first and then the Jew. In it, we're going to see rock-solid cases of humanity. And here, here, let's make sure we understand this. We're involved in humanity. Like, it's not those guys. It's humanity. A rock-solid case for humanity's guilt and treason and idolatry. A clear picture into the ways that, that the world, including us, ha- have sinned and what sin leads us to, as well as a clear communication about God's wrath and judgment against that. Now, as we talk about the difficulty of these words coming up, there is a pastor and theologian named uh, Sinclair uh, Ferguson. He's a British man, and, and he uh, had an experience where, where he spoke about some college students in the UK who decided that they wanted to reach other students on, on campus. And, uh, and college students, they just tend to do interesting things. So, so they decided this is going to be their way in to reach with the gospel, the community at their school. They printed out the words of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 32 in a contemporary format, they, meaning they, they printed them out with no verses and no headings, and there's no source reference back to Rome, uh, Romans or anything like that. It appears like a, a 21st century modern, composition, they get it already and they hand it out to people and they put it all around uh, campus, distributing it wherever they could. And not long after they distributed it, the group leaders were called before campus authorities and there was a problem. As they were called before them, they were, they were told uh, very clearly by the authorities how offensive they had been. They had told them that the things that they printed on this piece of paper should never be said to anyone. These are horrible words. These are hateful words. And these type of words, right, imagine the language. These type of words have no place on a campus like this. The campus authorities then demanded that they hand over the author of the document. We need to know who did that. We're going to deal with them properly. We're going to punish them for their offensiveness. That type of word has no, no place on our campus. Imagine their surprise. They're like, well... <laughs> It's the Bible, um, authors, Paul, so uh, it's been dead a while. I mean, you can try and punish him, I guess, if you want, right? These words are difficult, but not just Paul. These are, here's what we need to understand to hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. These aren't just the apostle Paul going rogue and mad one day. These are the breathed out words of God to us to build us up, help us understand things. Many people will hate these words, and your stomach will probably turn at some points in what we cover over the next couple of weeks but we need to behold them. As the text opens, it says this, and right, he, he didn't play around. The, the theologian wasn't kidding about not giving us a back rub. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. That's the open for today. The wrath of God is revealed. There's two categories there when he talks about ungodliness and unrighteousness. And, and he's saying God's wrath is, is revealed against the irreverence of man towards God 
the, the, the disrespectful, kind of flippant way that man acts towards a creator God, and the immoral, unjust way that man acts around each other. So what we need to understand is there's a vertical element of this. God, his, his wrath is being shown for the way we deal in relationship with God, and then for the way that we deal in relationship to each other. There's a vertical and horizontal aspect, but then Paul synthesizes it down just to make sure that we aren't confused into one main idea going, this is why he is mad, right? The, the vertical and horizontal implication is God is angry. He's furious. The original language of, uh, of this wrath is a, is a powerful emotion. He is furious with one specific sin, a sin found in both categories of people. This is a one that is a universal sin, meaning all have uh, committed it, every human being. You have and, and I have. This is the sin that most clearly expresses our, our fallen nature, the nature of Adam wedged into our hearts, the corruption of our fallen flesh. This is the sin that shows our brokenness, and this is the sin, again, we need to lean into it, that provokes the fury of God the sin of suppressing the truth. That's the thing that causes God to be furious. When men and women suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I mentioned before that Paul would anticipate pushback against his thesis. Remember that the gospel is what we need to fix us. One of the classic pushbacks against the gospel being what all of us need for salvation is someone will always ask, okay, how would a loving God have wrath towards, judge, or condemn a person who's never heard of him, right? Classic argument. How would he condemn a person for not putting their faith in Jesus if they've never even heard of said Jesus? And normally what they'll do is then they'll point to an obscure tribe in Africa and be like, that guy. How would your God do it to, to that guy? And, and what they're trying to ask is how can a person suppress the truth that they haven't heard? Remember, suppressing the truth is, is the sin that, that brings the wrath of God. How can a person be guilty of suppressing a truth that they've never heard of? That's the question. How would a loving God be so cruel as to punish a person who's just innocent? They had no idea of what they were doing. First, that's a great question that we should process because it seems valid on the, the, the surface. And here's the reason why it seems valid and, and why it needs to be dealt with. This question is implying something. It's implying the problem that humanity has before God is informational. Well, the, how, how would your God be mad at the person who doesn't have the information as if all the people who do have the information are doing great with it? If all people had the right information, well, then God could judge them fairly is, is, is the thing that they're asserting. But since all people don't have the quote-unquote right information, God cannot do that or he would be cruel and unjust and a terrible God. Paul sees the question coming a mile away and he addresses it. That's what happens in verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This them means like everyone. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, again, the, them, the everyone are without excuse. R.C. Sproul says it this way. Uh, he's super helpful in the book of Romans. God does not pop a clue into history about his existence every 3,000 years or so. Every moment since the dawn of creation, God has been manifesting himself through the things that are made. He continues on later. God's self-existent eternal being has been revealed in every leaf, 
in every page, every raindrop, and every inch of the cosmos since the beginning of time. What Paul was saying and what Sproul was commenting on is that the knowledge of God himself is not obscure, it's not hidden, it's not something that there's clues around the world that if you just search hard enough, maybe you'll, you'll be able to find them. God, from the beginning, has been revealing himself to the creation, understanding even when we look at our, our Bible and the way we view things, it's the only God who speaks to us to be known. Our God is a, a God of revelation, revealing himself. He's been doing this all along. He isn't a God that only those who find what is called maybe hidden knowledge will find him. All throughout history, there have been people who believe in secretive hidden knowledge. They just find it, right? From fountains of youth to enlightened ways to view the world to to special revelations. If you just work diligently enough and you find, then life is just going to be better for you. Paul says God isn't like that kind of secret knowledge sort of thing. Our God is not the the cosmic creator of a game where he creates the world and then plays hide and seek going, hey, you can't find me. Like That's not our God. There's a wealth of revelation about God that we find in our Bible if we look. And people could hear about God if the people of God would share him with them. But outside of that, God has revealed himself. He's made manifest himself clearly in creation. And Paul clarifies saying that we see what God is like literally by looking at what he's created. We see his attributes his eternal power, his divine nature, they're all in creation. So, so people in a remote village in Africa who may not have heard the name of God, they'll still know he's there. He's always been revealing himself. And on some level, they've decided to suppress the knowledge that he is there. Remember the question, how could a loving God have wrath towards a person who has never heard of him, one who doesn't know God exists? Uh, the answer is, Well, everyone knows God exists because he's always been revealing. How will someone be held accountable for for suppressing the truth that they they do not know? And Paul says, well, God has revealed himself to everyone. Even if a person doesn't have the, the right information or the right words about God's existence, it is screamed out by all of creation that he is there and he's done it and his hand is all over. It's everywhere. Which means the remote villager and the angry atheist college professor alike neither have excuse and neither do we for suppressing the truth because God has revealed himself to us. None are innocent. Tim Keller says it this way. He's just a Yoda with words sometimes. What Paul is saying here when it comes to the knowledge of God is we know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. You fallen? We know, but sometimes we don't know because I don't want to know. J.D. Greer talked about this in a super helpful example. Um, So near the end of World War II, the first town with a concentration camp in it was liberated by Allied forces. This town uh, was in uh, Germany called Ordruf. The Nazis tried to get rid of all of the evidence before uh, the Allied soldiers got there, but they weren't able to accomplish the task. The American GIs got in before they cleared it out, and they witnessed hundreds and hundreds of bodies when they arrived. It was the first concentration camp that had ever been witnessed, right? We've maybe seen pictures and things like that. Nobody had ever seen it at this point, and, and they saw the horrors of something that no human had seen before. A few hours later, General Patton arrived, and this is a, a, a man who is used to war. He's seen things, And when he gets in and he walks around a couple hours after uh, the the Allied forces 
got there, he promptly vomited at the scene. He couldn't take it. Understand that. The horrors were worse than anyone could understand. So the next day, Patton brought out the, the mayor of Ordruf and his wife to the camp because he, he thought there's no way they didn't know that this was going on. And he brought them out to see, okay, what, what, what must they have known was going on in their own town? He ended up ordering the mayor and every able-bodied person in the town to come out and dig graves, and they they ended up trying to show at least some sort of final respect to uh, the people who were killed there by by giving them a grave and and then conducting a funeral for them. A little bit after that was done, Patton found out that the mayor and his wife went home and and they hung themselves. Before they did, they left a short note that reads as follows. We did not know, but we knew. There's an incredible ability for the human mind to know something, but to not know it. They don't really want to know it. Keller says, at times the truth is just too uncomfortable. It's too demanding. It would require too much change, uh, too much submission. It it would require too much of of going away from the world that we want to live in and build to acknowledge the truth. So it's, it's easier, maybe even in our subconscious, to bury it. Again, we know but we choose not to know. This is what Paul says is the way it works among creation because God isn't hidden. Sometimes he's suppressed though. And as we look at this, like this isn't too far-fetched. We've seen things in our lives where we know the implication of that would not be good and we kind of like, nah, it'll be okay. We have a capacity for that. You've seen it in your heart and I've seen it in mine. It's important to note here though, this Revealing of God that's made manifest in creation. This is what is called general revelation, right? It's available to all, everyone. It's in creation. Uh, It is more general, but it's available to every person who exists. Well, even though there's general revelation, we still need to share the gospel with our city and the nation because uh, sharing uh, specific revelation about who God is is much more powerful. Why? Because it's specific. We aren't meant to walk away from this text going, this is the greatest news. I don't have to say anything because it's just obvious. That's not what he means. But God has made himself manifest. And the people where God are supposed to help show the world the specifics of the manifestation of God through the Bible and sharing the gospel. Always have to do a little cleanup work to make sure we don't go sideways there. Now, the word used in the text for suppressed, remember what we said is the sin that caused God to to be furious and still does is the suppression of truth in unrighteousness. The word for suppressed in Greek is katakane, which means to to hinder, uh, to, to incarcerate, to stifle, to obscure, to repress. And we can think of this like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. You ever tried that? Right when you're a kid, you don't, you, don't, like, you, don't, you don't got the guns to do it. And then later you get a little bigger and you get some heft and you, you can actually hold the ball under the water. It's difficult to do, but it can be done. It takes an active force to hold it down to get a beach ball to stay under the water. And as soon as you, you, you remove that active force, what does it do? It comes flying back up. The revelation of God is kind of like that. It keeps popping up. No matter how hard you try and push it down, no no matter how hard people want to suppress it or not behold it, they can never get rid of it. Why? Because it's always going to spring back. It's all over creation. 
This, they aren't just pet lines that we have about the world. It's the, literally the world in the way that it is created is a manifestation of the artist who created it, which is God. You can try and hide it, but it's always going to come back. You may ask, okay, well, what's some of the ways that God has revealed himself in creation? Well, I mean, we could, we could do a year-long series on that, but just a couple things. Well, the complexity of creation the beauty of creation, and that's not even going into the fact that there are laws that we would hold to that that would beg the question, where did that moral law come from? But in the complexity of creation, the more scientists find, and not just quote-unquote Christian scientists, the the more just in general scientists find, the, the deeper they dig, the more amazing creation becomes. Right, just light things that you've probably heard of or, 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 or just uh, details that you may have heard of from the angle of the earth's rotation. If it goes one way more, we burn up. And if it goes another way, we, we freeze. Kind of specific. In, in the chemical makeup of, of the atmosphere, uh, if the oxygen level changed just a little bit, if it went down just a little bit, we would suffocate. If it went up just a little bit, we would all burn in flames. It, it's, it's pretty precise the way that it's done. And the more that we discover about genetic makeup and the complexity of that, it's mind-boggling to scientists. Again, not even just Christian scientists, but just scientists. It's mind-boggling how elegant a strand of DNA is. It is an amazing thing of precision and elegance and beauty. It's like trying to hold a beach ball underwater to believe all of that is random. I mean, you can do it, but man, doesn't it take a lot of force to pretend? To believe the the complexity and the elegance and the precision all just came by, oops, accident? By some random atoms bumping into each other millions and millions of years ago, and we have this complex thing that we live in. It is only a mind that is predisposed to not want to believe that God is real that would hold on to that. The belief that creation could come from nothing with no design and no behind of it is a suppression that's so strong. It's so cavalier to be able to do that, right? It takes way more faith. We get pushed into the corner a lot as believers. Like the world makes us feel like, like we're the crazy ones. It takes way more faith to believe that all that just happened on accident than to believe that there's a creator. You have to know that. The same goes for the beauty of creation. The stars, when you look out on a clear night, the vastness of them can't be counted by us and just that human eye sitting there like lose track at 8 million every time. The vibrant colors that dance in the sky when you look out, the ocean's waves, right? For, for me, the majesty of a mountain range that breaks into the clouds and you, you get to climb up and look at the vastness of what God has created, to big old snowflakes landing on you when you know you don't have to clean the, the, the drive after it. Like Those are beautiful things. To believe that the artist behind those things was the unknown artist of random chance? Man, like, to believe that all of that artistic ability was random would be like throwing a a ton of papers into a closet with a couple pens and believing that the collective work of Shakespeare is going to come out. It could happen. No. No, it couldn't. Somebody did that, and it's amazing. Creation's like that. Again, it... It's holding a beach ball underwater to, to suppress the truth. You, you can do it. Man, probably exhausting, though. There's just a few of the ways. But all men and women, including us, have suppressed the, the truth. And even with the evidence before us that God exists, 
what the suppression of truth leads to, this is the way Paul will navigate. The suppression of truth leads to people who don't honor God and they aren't even thankful for the things that he has done. Suppression leads to dishonor and thanklessness. But to honor God or to not honor God is to deny his hand and what he has done. It's to deny what he has made. It's to not acknowledge him as the authority or the the sovereign one over all creation. To not be thankful, we understand what that means. It's to try and take credit uh, for yourself, for the things that God has given you, for the opportunities and the moments that he has gifted you. It's good. I did that. This is what suppressing the truth leads to in the lives of others and the lives of us if we're not careful. Dishonoring, ungrateful, thankless hearts. This is where we need to tread lightly and not point fingers, right? Because it's easy to read a text like this and just assume it's about other people. It's the angry atheist or the the God-hater or the, you know, whatever political side that you don't like. You you maybe just assign the the most egregious cases of, of rejecting God to this sort of thing. But we have to understand when we take credit for all the things in our life, including the talents that we had nothing to do with, that were given and wired and knit into who we are, when we become focused on only what we want and what we want to pursue and what feels good to us and, and what serves us, when we forget that even the air we breathe is a gift that we get that God gives us, when worshiping God and serving God and even just showing up to church starts to feel like a, a chore, when, when community begins to feel like, like, like a duty instead of a gift, when we live for us and ignore our fellow man and ignore the worship to God that he is owed, these are forms of suppressing the truth. And it's the outworking of a heart that's beginning to dishonor God, to be thankless about what he's done. Again, if that ruffles your feathers, it's, it's just the progression I didn't write it. I see it, though, in my heart and yours and the world around us. Paul then warns, when anyone does this, again, watch the, the path. When, when anyone suppresses the truth and they begin to dishonor God and not thank him for too long, when they don't honor him, when they do their own thing, when they sin and reject God and his person for way too long, this is what happens. They become futile in their minds and their hearts are darkened. In their darkened hearts, they claim to be wise, but they've actually become fools. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images of man and birds and creeping things. And this text over the past year or so has just been particularly impactful and weighty to me. I've just been looking at it for just a a long time because I feel how dark it is. If we look at this and don't turn away and we actually see faces or examples of our own life where where, where this happened, it's hard to to behold. It's like a horrific train wreck that you you look at and you don't want to see it, but, but, but but it happened and it's there when humanity suppresses the truth about God and walks away from him when they take God out of the center where he belongs and insert themselves in the place while the world tells us that this place is where you're going to find freedom and happiness, Paul says this is the place where you lose yourself. Like, really lose yourself. And you begin to be stripped of your humanity there. Darkened heart. Futile thinking. 
Paul says, your thinking becomes useless, like fruitless. The things that you think and the things that you process and the way your mind navigates around the world when you do this, it's literally useless. It becomes broken. There's no good from it. And your heart, it it twists it up in on itself and it becomes darkened and dark and calloused. And with this darkened heart, you begin to feel wise and emboldened. You don't even realize that you've become a fool. You don't even realize what's happened. The word for fool here is not about mental capacity. It's about moral capacity. Your morality becomes broken and foolish. It doesn't make sense. Again, we're not just pointing fingers. Our hearts will go down this rabbit hole if we do these things. Then, in the progression, since no matter what we, can, we, we do, we still can't change who we are. You and I are worshiping people. We've been wired with that innately. So you can, you can press the beach ball down all that you want, but you cannot rewrite your, rewrite your DNA. You cannot rewrite how the God of the universe created you. He created us to be worshiping creatures. And since you can't turn off the worship in you, what you will do is you exchange the worship that you give. We will exchange the worship of God for the worship of other things. We exchange worship in the immortal, beautiful, sovereign, omnipotent Father God who is full of love and mercy for us. We exchange the worship of that God who does not want to hurt us for pictures of animals, creeping things, pictures of people. We're not meant to really fixate on what does he mean by by images resembling man and birds and creeping things. That's not the point. The point here is the weird exchange. That's the point. When our worship isn't pointed at the creator, we will point it at other things, weird things. Anything and everything becomes an item of of worship. John Calvin said that, that our hearts are like idol factories. We will turn literally anything into an idol. We worship people, their fame if we can't have it, money, sex, desire. We worship ourselves we worship our family, whether it's our, our, our lineage behind us or the family picture that we want. We worship autonomy. What I want most is never to be told what to do. We worship our, our, our nation, politics, education, ours or our, our children's. We, we worship sports. Like, understand the audacity of that. I am so worshipful of a grown man with a ball. Yes or your child, because you want to get them a a, a college uh, scholarship. We worship choice, freedom, free markets, 401ks. Dudes, I know you. We worship golf. I don't because I'm terrible at it. I worship other things, though. I'm not out. Shopping, vacation, Instagram, or... Pinterest, that was a weird Instagram moments. Not in the notes. Seriously, though, the awkwardness of, we worship clothes, shoes, jobs, anything we behold 
Ooh, we give ourselves to it. When humanity does this, when they suppress the truth about God and ignore God, when they don't honor or worship him, but worship everything else, here's the part you can't run from. This is the wrath. Then God lets us have it. He lets us run at whatever we want. This is considered the, the now aspect of the wrath of God. Right? We, can, we can think, well, his wrath is just later for those people. No, no, There's a now aspect and an eternal aspect of God's wrath. He lets us have our crummy, destructive worship. He lets us chase after a million things that he created and that we know won't satisfy us. And he doesn't stop us anymore. He lets our idolatry run wild. There's many times where he'll, he'll, he'll grab your conscience and try and get you to turn and try and get you to change and try and get you to lead to his mercy and his goodness. And finally he goes, you can run to whatever your little darkened heart desired. Take a second and notice what that means. Complete freedom from God, where on earth there are no rules, right? He doesn't restrain us or stop us from doing whatever we want. Man calls this heaven. Paul calls it hell on earth. The wrath of God is revealed because he pulls his hand off and says, fine, go. You want to be God, see where he leads yourself. So when people ask, and right, we see this probably more from parents, grandparents, what's God going to do about the sin of our country? We are so sexually broken. What's he going to do about our, our, our crazed sense of sexuality and our pursuit of it and our, and our twistedness in what we behold and what we do. What's he going to do in the fact that we, we look at horrific things all the time? What's he going to do about us being a nation who so clearly rejects him? The answer is he already did it. He let us have our way and our way led to that dark and destructive scene that we see. Where we are now the things that we see, some of the things that we have done, those are manifestations of the wrath of God. Fine. So we see all the markers that Paul mentions in verse 24 and 25 that come when God gives people up. Right? Top, top down, suppressing the truth. If the top don't honor or, or uh, glorify God, then it leads to those things. And then there's these other markers when he lets people have their way, people be, or get consumed by the lusts of their hearts, what they want, what they desire, what their flesh needs. Whatever they want becomes what they chase. They become consumed by impurity. Evil acts become normal, accepted, praised. They dishonor their bodies. Things that are so clearly wrong become worship, praised, and done with perceived impunity. 
The cycle of sad, broken worship en- envelops them. Here's the saddest part. In this terrible scene of evil and dishonorable acts, the people actually think they're thriving. And I don't want to push you into too much of a corner, but if you've had a rough story, look at the moments of your life when you went off the rails. I know I had moments of this. Doing awful things. Thinking I was ruling the world. They don't even see their plight. They're emboldened, even though they can't see. Now, I told you that this would be dark and hard. Um, now we get to land the plane. Come back next week. If we think, wow, this is depressing, remember, Paul is just making a case here for why we need the gospel, why it's the only thing that will fix us. He's talking about what sin does and what it leads to in all of mankind, what it may have led to in us before. He's showing uh, in this text what the movement towards idolatry looks like. The, the movement doesn't just happen. It, suppressing the truth, dishonoring God, thankless heart, chase what you want. Like there, there, There's a progression. He's showing us the movement towards idolatry and then showing what the madness of idolatry looks like. He kind of opened the, 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 the blinds just a little bit for that this week and he's gonna show even more next week for the misery that that idolatry takes into and the absolute moral rebellion. He's gonna go even darker into it next week. But in the face of all of this heavy, weighty news about sin and idolatry still stands the beautiful gospel. God sent Jesus into the world to heal that, to, to make a way to pull sinners uh, out of the, the darkened hearts that they're living in, out of the awful exchange and back into the loving arms of God. This is the gospel news. Yes, it is that bad. And yes, there is a way out. Jesus has come for that. Beholding this text, of course it's hard. Why? Because we probably see our story and our family's story and people we know's story and the world around us in it. It's hard because we're human. And our hearts may want to look away, but if you do, you'll miss the incredible good news of the gospel. You'll miss the reality that we should behold clearly. Right? The, the, the old song, right? I, I found myself singing it. My wife's like, what are you doing? Amazing love. How could it be that you, my king, would die for me? That's the news. Jesus came for your heart when you were like that and mine too. That's what the gospel declares. And in the throes of rebellion, Christ laid his life down to save us, right? You, you understand he doesn't walk up and be like, I didn't think you were going to do that. He knew. And he still came. In, in, the, in the darkness of our rebellion, he comes, pulls us out of the wrath of God, the wrath of God now and the eternal wrath of God, and this is where the dynamite comes from. The power of the gospel is meant to land in the full scope of our darkness. Jesus comes running in to save us and pull us out. Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, bled and died for our suppression of the truth. He, he died for our wrong worship. He died for our dishonor and our thanklessness. And he gives us, hear this, his righteousness when we know full well we have none of our own. 
This is the Savior we worship. This is the good news that changes men and women from the inside out. This is why it's dynamic power that reorients our worship back off the bad exchange and back to God the Father. This is the news that gives us clean hands and clean hearts. Notice again that we, we couldn't have wrote a story like this. Notice the scandalous nature of the gospel of God. When we exchange worship, when we exchange the worship of God, no thank you, don't care, I did it on my own, I don't need you. Right? When we do that, the worship of lesser things, God steps in and offers us the ability to exchange our sin-stained resume for the perfect righteousness of Jesus. We exchange worship. Jesus offers us the ability to exchange identity. Be given clean hands, new names. This is why Jesus perplexed people by saying the only way to salvation is you must be reborn. I, I must make you new. This is the shocking news of the gospel for those who are in Christ. I was given a new name and a new identity and a righteous standing in iron. None of it. So as we close in worship, what we're going to do, we'll end up taking communion uh, today. It's at the front table. You don't have to be a member uh, to, to take it. Just your faith needs to be in Jesus. You can grab one after we pray and begin to uh, play worship. Let your heart be glad. You receive mercy and pardon today from all the things in that story. Be so careful about going like, I, I was never that bad. I was. We've received mercy. There's a sacrifice that still stands. There's a good work that has been done for you and it can never be taken away from you. This is the good news that we take. And when we take the bread and take the cup, we're remembering you have died. You've exchanged my darkened heart for a clean one. You worked on me then and you're still working on me now and you'll never let me go. You take in, you know, hey, I, don't, I have no work left to do, but I get to walk closer to my Savior and worship him in light of what he has done. If you stand here knowing that you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you have suppressed the truth like all of us have, never accepting the truth of Jesus over you, I would just ask you, why not turn to Jesus and be saved? It's a better offer. Receive his free gift for you. I'll pray with you after service if you want. Somebody else would pray here uh, with you if you want. The, the basics of it is acknowledging I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I've suppressed the truth. I did not honor you. I did not glorify you. I did my own thing. I need you. I need your redemption. I need you to save me. Help me. This is what it means to call out to the Lord. Don't leave without submitting if you feel I'm chasing your heart. Why would you? There's horrible, horrible news of what sin does beautiful news of what Jesus has come to do, though. Ben, you guys can come back up. As we take communion, you can take it during uh, us playing the, the last three songs. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you take, you're proclaiming what Jesus has done. 
You're proclaiming that he pulled you out of darkness, that he gave you a new heart, that you were fully rebellious, and yet there's a sacrifice that overshadows and cleans all of that away. A praise you take that you would see that and that your heart would worship in gratitude today. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, thank you for these words. Help us, they are hard. They're difficult to see the reality of, of who we are, of what we have done, of how we have acted. But Lord, I pray that our eyes would not turn away from it today. Let us behold the reality of the situation, the full truth without turning away to see that you have been so good. Gracious, merciful Father. Lord, we confess we have suppressed truth. We have dishonored you. We have been thankless. We've chased the desires of our hearts. We've done all of that, and yet you knew and you loved and you have come. Let us see and behold that. I pray where you show us areas that we still need to walk away, that we would repent and run back to your arms. Would we appropriately deal, Holy Spirit, with whatever you're laying on our hearts today? Give us worshipful hearts. Let us see with clear eyes the beauty of what you've done. You're so good and you're kind. I pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed with the reality of what you've done, not just for us, but for the, the loved ones that are around us, or the ones that are around us that are still running from you. Lord, I pray as you show us what our sin has done, if there are people that we have made enemies that we don't understand, that their hearts are just darkened, Lord, would you give us the ability to forgive, to love, to see clearly that we have been them, bind up our wounds, draw us to you. You are good and you are patient and you are kind. We love you, God. Be glorified today.